I have I have a side account dedicated entirely to the online persona that I am willing to acknowledge as being related to me in real life. <laughs> Perfect. The protagonist is a real shitbag for a lot of the first books. <laughs> Just like a huge asshole. And I love it. I guess this is the time in the recording where I should be saying some stuff that would be funny for you to discover when you come back. Well, shit, I'm going to be editing this one. God damn it. Never mind. I maintain that Nebraska is not a real place. That's fair. Welcome to the Farmhouse, a podcast where two people always have a guest on it. My name is Alex Ops. My name is Jordan Smart. And we're doing something a little different this week where we don't have a guest, so I did lie to you the instant this podcast started. Uh, Jordan, do you want to talk a little bit more about what exactly we're kind of going for in this episode and, and why we're doing it? Yeah, I mean, part of it is that, you know, we, we, we want to be a regular part of your life, listeners. Um, and so we're we're going to try and shoot to commit real hard to a bi-weekly schedule going out uh, from this point so that you, know, you can always know when to expect the farmhouse in your inbox. But part of that means that, you know, if we want to deliver regular content, um, sometimes when working with people and, and guests, uh, their, their schedules don't always conform to that. So we want to be able to deliver you, you know, some, some content, something to listen to, something to accompany you while you're folding your laundry or uh taking that that long long drive down pch but either either way you know if if you'll if you'll have us then then alex and and i will be your your constant companions every every wednesday going forward or other other wednesday it was so much more eloquent than i would have put it i I would have made a real (laughs) example at the start and then said or you know pooping (laughs) um but yeah that's that's kind of the idea we want and we we don't really know how long these are going to run until we're done recording this and it's been edited and stuff it might be shorter you know it might vary in length a lot but it's just kind of going to be uh the two of us chatting about different topics that interest us uh that will hopefully interest the audience as well and we'll figure out exactly how long that would be whether it's a little bit shorter than the other ones or or just us rambling <laughs> who knows um but but we'll figure that out as we go and we have some notes and stuff that we're going to use but you know who knows how it'll go yeah so um, that you know in, in our efforts to be further engaged um we have set up a, a subreddit on reddit you may have noticed if you've been listening to these through the website and and yearning for a way to reach out and communicate with us there is there's not really a way for you to do that right now but we have set up a, a subreddit, The Farmhouse, so reddit.com slash r slash The Farmhouse, where we'll be posting episodes. So if you want to go on there, we'll be posting the old episodes. So if you want to comment and, you know, let us know how you felt about or what we, we said, or if you're, you're very angry about some technical point we made that you are absolutely sure is very wrong. Um, you know, Especially we'll if you're angry. Yeah. We'll be happy <laughs> to review those recommendations. And, uh, at some point in the very near future, we'll be setting up a Q and A session as a, as an ask us anything on somewhere on Reddit, and uh, you'll you'll be able to to get in contact with us. Yeah, that I way. think I think long term. Also, uh, one of the things that we've talked about 
um, that I, I don't know how long I, we want to wait before starting, but at some point I think we'd like to get involved in having a Q&A in general for episodes. Uh, yeah. We want to make sure that there's a community and an audience for this available. Uh, we know we're very much in the early phases of this podcast and nobody knows us, and that's totally <laughs> fine. Uh, nobody. Yeah, nobody. Nobody knows who we nobody. are. Yeah, exactly. So, I, I, you know, long term, we very much, one of the things that I think really interests me um, is that I enjoy the idea of talking and, and answering questions of individuals, uh, either of our guests or, or of us directly, uh, of things that listeners are interested in. Whether we're exactly going to put that on the subreddit or, or whether we'll have individuals reach out to our email or Gmail directly, I think is TBD. Uh, it doesn't really matter. I, I, as far as I'm concerned, in the future, it could be both. If you don't want to post something in the subreddit, you still want to ask it. Um, but that that's something that I'm very personally interested in because I enjoy hearing what other people's thoughts are and I enjoy hearing what people are interested in or I wouldn't be hosting a podcast where we generally host guests on it. <laughs> so Yeah, I mean, I think, I think part of the enjoyment of this for us has been talking to the guests and, you know, partly if, if we're going to do this episodes talking to each other um we, we do want to you know engage more people and, and get more more people in on the discussion going forward so i think that's most of what we had covered for the intro um yeah. just kind of wanted to you know tell y'all why we don't have a guest this week and why you know in future weeks we, we we're still going to try to generally have guests and if we start that q a thing i think we will hopefully try to release a bit of a schedule and and a bit of background on individuals who might be on it so that people who want to ask questions can point their questions towards them and how they reached certain things in their life or, or certain topics and, and interests on that. But we just wanted to let you all know what's going on. You ready to hop in, Jordan? Yeah, yeah. So we've got we've got a couple topics that we, we wanted to talk about. And the first one is is kind of a, a bittersweet moment in, in aerospace history. It's kind of a a sad a sad moment in itself, but it, it is a moment because it marks a, a truly remarkable ending and that is that the opportunity mars rover after nasa attempted to send over 1000 signals to reach it since uh last contact back in august nasa has declared that mission officially over after 14 years and 311 days <laughs> it is absolutely <laughs> crazy that it lasted that uh, long um, yeah let's so that that yeah that 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 tallies up to five thousand four hundred and twenty-one days total, which is more than sixty times the the ninety-day originally laid out mission time for that rover to be to be pootling around Mars and gathering data and dust and rocks and things. I appreciate that you had that number ready because I had a calculator <laughs> open on my laptop and was doing it while you were talking. So thank you for, for beating me to the punch there. And and that's especially interesting to me because regardless of, of you know, my, my joke with a lot of these rover missions is that the way I've always thought of them is they, they NASA tends to set a very low margin for success because even if it is only a 90-day mission it would be incredibly successful if they could get data from those 90 days mm -hmm. and have it have it run and and it would still be incredibly valuable to not only nasa but humanity but 
my joke in the past has generally been like, well, you know, they said it for 90 days, but like there's part of them that knows when they launch this thing. Like, yeah, unless something catastrophic happens within those first 90 days, it's probably going to last much longer. But yeah, I mean, there's there's the traditional engineering safety factor, right? So whatever whatever you think that your system's going to have to deal with, typically you'll design it to deal with somewhere between 50% to three times worse conditions or, or you know, more adverse conditions to deal with. But sixty times, yeah, is, so, is a so it's a bit, bit crazy. Yeah. It's a bit, it's a bit nuts, and and the fact that it lasted fourteen years is absolutely insane to me. That that yeah. like I can make jokes about them having low margins for success, but fourteen years is is real impressive. Yeah, I mean that's a you know there's there's some bean counter saying somewhere where oh well if it if it lasted fourteen years when it was meant to last ninety that just meant that you you spent too much money on it and and spent too much engineering <laughs> effort on it you could have. You could have designed this thing in a week, and it would have lasted ninety days. Obviously, if if you, you made it last for fourteen years, but I mean that's that's kind of the trade off you make in, in engineering. It's it's a weird it's a weird paradox of of space technology that we generally expect the the money that we pour into NASA and the time and effort to return to the economy and to the scientific establishment, you know, a multiple of of what's invested in terms of, of new cutting edge technology that we would not have discovered otherwise. But then the stuff we send into orbit and send to Mars and places like that tends to be so dead simple that it is somewhere between 30 to 400 years out of date in, in some ways that, you know, in order to guarantee that, that it will work you know, millions of miles away, where we have where we have no ability to go and and tweak a tweak a dial or something if it if it's slightly misaligned. Yeah, and and just to take another s- statement, you know, not not to say that NASA doesn't have an incredibly good ROI on every dollar put into it. I believe it's, I believe it's ten to one. Uh, in terms I'm, of, I'm I'm pretty sure it's at. I mean, obviously, people might be higher on this, but I think the <laughs> lowest number I've ever seen is like three or four times, you know, whatever you pay NASA, like they yeah. return it four times to the economy. I've seen some, I think as high as 20. Yeah. But, and I'm, I'm yeah. sure that's arguably up for debate. But at the end of the day, I mean, yeah, I, I just want to make sure that any listener who thinks, oh, well, you know what, based off what Jordan just said, you know, this doesn't actually produce more money for the u.s u.s or u.s economy but it you know it super does yeah. um yeah. but yeah i mean <laughs> things are largely out of date and and i think some of the private industry has been trying to you know improve upon that a bit but it's it's you know this launched in 2003 and it was probably worked on for i don't know you think 20 years but 10 to 20 years I mean, at least yeah i mean yeah in, ter- in terms of just the overall sketchings for you know, first the mission planning and whatnot. And part, part of it is just because you are in such an adverse environment, right? Like it take it just takes literal time to go through the process of, of checking that your electronics are EMP hardened and, you know, can resist radiation, can resist shock and can resist dust and can resist, you know, all the other things you might encounter between here and Mars. So that one, that just adds a essentially a time penalty and, and you know, you can't deploy the latest and greatest newest tech that's that's rolling off the the assembly lines on a space system there but then 
you you want you want to be you know ninety nine point nine 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 percent sure that it's gonna last for those ninety days. So that means you need ten thousand, a hundred thousand, however many samples of you know ninety days of of testing with these subsystem components and whatnot. And that that just takes time to accumulate that that confidence that you you understand down to. I mean, in some cases the very raw physics of how protons and, and neutrons and, and electrons and molecules and, and the basic chemistry of the electronics and the materials react under stress. And, and so the, the stuff that we send into space is, is vetted to a degree that, that no other system on earth, <laughs> no other system on earth uh, is, but yeah, I mean, that's when you look at, look at opportunity, it looks like, um, if, if you've never seen the movie Short Circuit, it's, it's like this mid-80s movie about this robot that comes to life. And, and to me, the Mars rovers have always kind of looked a bit like those uh, the, those kind of mid-80s fantasies about, about science fiction. But they they are the most steadfast engineering systems you will, you will ever encounter. Short Circuit. Now I'm looking up images of Short Circuit. I mean, I think, I think the most heavily influenced piece of culture since that movie wally um is is i i haven't found any documentation saying that it's a direct line but i'll i would be damnably surprised if if wally was not in part uh inspired by the design of johnny five was the the main robot from those movies yeah but you know what wally didn't have a little what? cowboy hat and a bandana and a, <laughs> a, a denim vest didn't have that oh wow I mean, this is i need to watch these now don't i I, I I don't know. Maybe just find the highlights on YouTube. I haven't. You don't. You don't think it holds up? You don't. Think I, I just an '80s I, robot I, movie. These, these hold movies up. themselves are so old. That, like I I I don't remember. There there are a couple scenes that I know are definitely memorable, but I, I don't know if the whole movies hold hold up. When did Space Camp come out? Because I watched Space Camp back in like school, and I always thought like, oh yeah, this is really cheesy, but it's still kind of good. No. Did you see Space Camp? Not that I, not that I remember. It's got a forty percent on Rotten Tomatoes, so maybe Ooh. it doesn't hold. It came out in eighties. Came out. In I mean, 80s it's better as than well. Space Jam. I think Space Jam is like thirty-two percent or something like that. Really? But everyone yeah. loves Space Jam. I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, I haven't seen Space Jam, but I've heard only positive things. You have not seen Space Jam? No, I haven't. I feel like I just, man. I just admitted to something terrible, and it's recorded. I, yeah, no, that's you're, you're gonna get blown up for that a little bit. <laughs> Can I mean, we still be friends? <laughs> I mean, it's. I mean, to to try and to try and put the opportunity mission into perspective, right? Like, think think about the last thing. I mean, and I'm talking it to you, listeners. Think about the last thing that you turned in for work, whether that's at school, or or whatnot. See, I think the first... think of it. Think of it more this way: some some cars don't last 14 years, <laughs> and they're on Earth. Yeah, this is this is a car on Mars. <laughs> um, yeah like it's it is absolutely yeah. nuts how long it lasts it's just 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 thinking about like you know punching the button and being like okay i'm done with this project and you know thinking about what you're going to be doing and and 14 years later like that 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 rover is still tootling around mars and i mean it, it it looks like what what actually ended the mission was is you know satellites and telescopes have observed a, a dust storm going on on mars for i think a fair portion of 2018 and uh it looks like probably the the solar panels on opportunity just got covered up 
and it's it's not ah, able to charge itself. That's that's really interesting because I wonder if a, a future similar s- such event could dislodge some of that from the solar panels. But if if, if it's, I mean, there's a total possibility it's just completely trapped in some of the yeah. terrain, and then there's no chance at that point. Yeah, I mean, that's is is one opportunity was was actually one of two sort of twin rovers with with Spirit um, was the other one that launched a couple of weeks ahead of it. Um, and that one, you know, similar 90-day mission, it actually lasted for, for five years um, before it appeared to get stuck somewhere and then, you know, slowly get buried by by wind and, and dust and whatnot. But, I mean, just, just the fundamental difficulty with landing on Mars is that it has an atmosphere, but it's a very thin atmosphere, which has a couple consequences. One, it means that the atmosphere actually, because it's so thin, it doesn't weigh a lot. And two, Mars has much lower gravity compared to Earth. And so the atmosphere just extends much higher off the surface. So when you try and send something to, to land on Mars, you can't really use parachutes because the atmosphere is so thin, but you also can't just you know free fall down into the surface. You will still burn up. So it's, it's kind of the worst of both worlds. And so landing rovers on Mars is a, is a really incredible technical challenge, which is why you see things like... Um, curiosity which is another rover that landed on mars doing crazy things like hover like having a platform suspended by rocket motors hovering and then lowering the rover with a skyhook onto the surface it's absolutely insane that that worked too yeah like I mean- <laughs> looking back on the mission it's like who came up with this and how did this work it look it looks like something out of a power rangers movie like we're gonna we're going to send the rocket ship down and then the rocket motor is just going to hover in place and we're going to rappel down from from this floating <laughs> rocket platform. Um, but it worked. Yeah, it worked. It worked amazingly. And I, 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 I think this is also Opportunities Mission End is particularly personal to me because one of the reasons, I think one of the things that really convinced me to be interested in engineering and the sciences was prior to the start, the summer before the start of my freshman year of undergrad. I watched, I stayed up late one night, my parents had already gone to bed, and I I almost accidentally stumbled upon the Curiosity landing. Mm -hmm. I think I was just like, it was really late at night. I think I was just playing video games with friends. (laughs) Happened to go to my Xbox dashboard and see, yeah, Curiosity's landing on Mars. And I was like, you can just watch them, watch the mission live. And, And I did. And between the explanation of how complicated the mission was, the technology aboard that thing, like the size of it, the, the excitement from the room watching it happen live, all of that was very, very exciting for me at the time. And, and kind of, you know, I had already decided, I think, at that point to to pursue engineering and the sciences, but I think it was part of what really cemented it for me at that point was, was seeing this indescribable mission <laughs> actually succeed that really moves humanity forward a lot and then part of this opportunity mission ending is just me realizing like oh we're gonna reach a point where curiosity's not gonna function anymore it's gonna be a sad day i'm not curiosity's well because curiosity is a little weird because yeah like opportunity and spirit were both primarily solar powered but i think curiosity is is nuclear powered but in a weird way in that it just has a like a ball of plutonium on board that's that, a more finite timeline. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one is a more finite timeline, but it but it's not like it's not like a nuclear reactor on board. It just uses the the heat from that ball of plutonium being radioactive to to drive its systems. Um, 
which I think there was a recent XKCD that just pointed out. Like, I was like, what are we, what are we going to use to power the rover? Oh, just a just a power orb. It's like, what, what is that? <laughs> it, it, it's just a ball that just spontaneously gives off energy. That, We're using know. the uh, oh, what was what's the thing called in the Avengers? The uh, oh, the Tesseract. Tesseract. Yeah, one of, yes. yeah, one of the Infinity the Stones. Yeah. Yeah, it, that's that's definitely one of those things that that yeah very much does not sound real unless except for the fact that it is it is an interesting take on the concept of of magical realism. But that's yeah that's that's a different podcast I think before we we start talking about that. <laughs> well, anyway, yeah, listeners, if 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 you care about science at all, make sure you pour one out for uh, opportunity. Yeah, and uh, hopefully we'll have even more exciting things in the future with future rovers and yeah. missions. Yeah, yeah, one can hope. One can hope. I think next on our our list to talk about is is a topic that's come up a couple times on the podcast previously just because I know myself I've been fairly engaged in the research and and Matthew our our first guest was um as well um but I think it's 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 a thing that's that's happening and I think at this point we can say is definitely real and actually something that, that I think people should be aware of in, in thinking about what the, the future is going to look like in the next 10 years. And that is eVTOLs, which are electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft, which have been described by some as, as flying cars. But that description really only applies in the sense that this is a personal vehicle, you know, maybe a small group of two to four people using them um, and using them for tasks like commuting and whatnot. But the, the timeline for them is getting kind of short. And I think there's there's very few people that are either not working for companies that are very close, you know, keeping their cards close to the vest about the development of these things or else are, are not ne- necessarily just going to blow smoke about about the possibilities. Um, but I think I think this is definitely something worth talking about. Yeah, you said so you said the timeline is getting pretty short and we can table that discussion for a second because I want to come back to that. But some of the groups for this, I think, that are working on it also have sort of different timelines. I think a good amount of people know that Uber has been working on something like this, but I don't know how mm-hmm. developed it is. Some of the other ones that uh, we're familiar with, you know, Kitty Hawk has over a year, almost a year ago now, uh, kind of oh God, yeah, shown yeah. off I some of their it, designs. It was close to a year now. Yeah. Um, AQ is A cubed and uh, slash yeah. Bahana, which I think yeah. is their research division in the U.S. Um, which is AQ is basically just a research division of Airbus has been working on one in Silicon Valley. Uh, you have Joby on our on our document. I'm actually not really familiar with Joby. Yeah, yeah. So I think I think actually we we kind of want to want to back up it here a little bit and talk about one. I mean, I think everybody is is at this point familiar with just the rise of electric vehicles and cars, right? And the fact that now we have sort of batteries that are are energy dense enough that you can put them on a vehicle and you can you know have enough energy to to move a a large vehicle and carry people a fair distance you know tesla and and now chevy and and jaguar and a couple other companies are now pushing into the 250 plus mile range for road vehicles right but uh, a while ago nasa really started looking at electric propulsion for aircraft because that that has a couple advantages over a traditional sort of turbofan and gas motors right aside from just didn't they fund like a i don't know if it was century millennium challenge or one of those things but yeah. for yeah. essentially a fully electric plane some years ago yeah yeah that was part part of that was was just sort of i think of the, of 
I forget which administration it was, but just just green travel initiatives. And so NASA pushed for electric aircraft development and, and you know, eventually did get a couple designs for, for some, some ultralight sort of single person aircraft that were capable of flying a, a, a fair distance on on purely electrical power. But now they're they're looking at okay, well, one of the big advantages is that electric motors are are fairly light, fairly compact, and don't produce a lot of vibration. So you can put a lot of them onto a single aircraft. So they have a division looking at distributed electric propulsion, which is you know what happens when you have eight, ten, twelve, twenty different propellers right out in front of a wing. Like how does that affect the aerodynamics? There's some strong promise that it makes it more efficient, but it also means that you can put them at, say, like weird angles and whatnot. So you can have an aircraft that is designed in a way that a typical sort of light aircraft is with, you know, wings that are great in cruise, but you could maybe just bolt some motors on it that are, are facing upwards that would then let you lift off vertically like a helicopter, right? And so you could take off vertically like a helicopter and then just cruise on your wings like a plane, which gets you both the ability to to take off and land in urban circumstances, but also cross fairly large distances that you couldn't do with a purely electric helicopter. It's a design that I think has largely benefited from a lot of the technological advances recently in not not recently, but over the last non zero quantity of time, you know, decade or two decades of modeling for aerodynamics mm. and the technology simply in just computers alone. It's not that VTOL didn't exist before. You got V22. Yeah, the and, Osprey. And, and yeah, you got the Osprey. And there's other examples as well that I can't think of because I don't know my planes that well. You know, they, they've existed before, but they were very limited. And now we're seeing groups saying, well, look at how easy it is to model these things. Look at how e- not easy, but look at how much more feasible it is to model these things rather than having people who designed the v22 so long ago and and having to do a, a lot of those tests with either no computers or incredible i mean basically no like you know with with much more simple ability to calculate these things and coming up with new designs based off of that which is really exciting because i think for a little bit the aerospace industry may have taken a bit of a, a, a stall in, in some things but it, i really think like with with stuff like this it's taken off a lot more recently yeah, I mean, we've we've moved from the point where something like the V-22 takes industry private partners and, you know, probably backing from NASA and the DOD to, to develop. And now small startup teams and, and small divisions within larger companies are able to develop reasonably credible designs for foreign aircraft. And I think we're, we're now at the point where, I mean, if you, if you take literally every EV tall design that's been put out there there there's something like 60 or 70 different proposals and designs that have been showcased for for how these aircraft can look and that's that's an interesting and exciting to people who do aerospace design research itself right obviously into the methodologies because you've got essentially one mission right an air taxi or maybe an air medevac or something like that but you've got this huge diversity of designs going into it this one we can talk about the the fact that you mentioned Uber and, and they, a couple years ago, put out essentially a proposal for, okay, if, if this is how we were to operate these aircraft, this is what it would look like, and this is what our requirements would be, and, you know, this is, you know, hint, hint, pl- 
if if somebody were to deliver us an aircraft like this, we would be very interested in buying it. And so that that's focused a lot of interest. And and to my mind, there are essentially three companies that are this is this is essentially my my personal opinion and and evaluating um, just just the news and the the technical reports that have come out. But there are essentially three companies that are kind of out in front leading the the charge here that I that I find particularly credible which is Kitty Hawk coming on a year ago now um displayed their Cora aircraft A cubed which is a subsidiary of Airbus has displayed their Vahana aircraft and Joby has displayed a, a couple different uh, aircraft under the the moniker of the S series and those are those are essentially the three that to me really seem to be most credible have have you know documentedly completed flight testing on these already and to my eye appear to have taken some very reasonable approaches to solving the aerodynamic and technical challenges involved in producing these aircraft but again yeah getting to that timeline the optimistic timeline for for these companies or for somebody else to really put a a marketable product out here is is 2023 which is a little bit far out but but not not too far and i think i think even the conservative timeline is you know, 10 years, so like 2028, 20, 2029, I think you can reasonably expect that you'll be able to pull out your phone, pull up Uber and and call for your, your personal electric aircraft to, to, to ferry you from point to point. It's interesting you say that because I didn't realize those timelines myself. I, I, I guess one of my quick questions before we, you know, move on to another question I had was, are those timelines for mass, not only success of original design, but timelines of mass producibility, or is that that is those are both conservative and non-conservative timelines of proof of design, fully success, and you know feasibility studies and all that stuff. I think I think twenty twenty three is 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 a reasonable estimate for like when the first aircraft that essentially like is as it is going to be carrying passengers to fly right, and and that's not necessarily going to be mass production. That will, I mean, just just based on the marketing and whatnot, that'll probably be some very ritzy, bougie people showing up on Instagram and taking <laughs> selfies of themselves flying between Dubai and Abu Dhabi in these. And then, yeah, probably like the late 2020s is when you'll see these aircraft essentially just become a regular part of the transportation infrastructure of not necessarily every country, but but some high density um, areas. So like the, the U.S. Northeast. Um, in around Tokyo and Japan, um, the Bay Area here around us in LA, um, a couple other areas. But yeah, I mean the these will will be I think yeah we're we're expecting sort of the rollout of self driving cars. Um, but I think the the sort of immediate next chapter after that in terms of what is the future of personal transport, I think eVTOLs are probably the biggest game changer um, to come out after those. So I, I have a question for you, and I'm curious to hear what you think about it. With the considerable price of production of these things and the, I'm sure, non-insignificant price of maintenance over a lifetime use of these items and and their limited battery life currently based off of existing batteries, do you feel that this is a piece of technology that will be readily available to people all around the economic spectrum or do you think that this is going to remain something that will be used and seen regularly 
but something that your boss is taking to work. So that, <laughs> of, of the technical specs that it put out, I mean, most people are reticent to put out cost information just because it tends to be the hardest to project. And and as of right now, I don't really believe anybody's cost numbers. Um, so So these are very rough estimates. I think that not within the foreseeable future does this displace kind of conventional mass transit for commuting. I think that probably the most interesting thing that these do, however, is is expand commutable distance. So people who right now are paying relatively high rent for the the privilege or, or the convenience of living close to where they work, I think will probably find themselves able to live further out, but take these kinds of aircraft as commuter aircraft so so not cheap and and definitely requires some some realignment of lifestyle but kind of kind of a, a very close case study we've been looking at is you know obviously in in the bay area and, and around manhattan and whatnot rents are are incredibly high ranging from two three thousand dollars on on up to be very close to say san francisco or, or somewhere else if you can live out in say around i mean around here like dixon or davis or some of the these places that traditionally we would not really think of as the bay area i would say that the cost of these aircraft is probably going to be small enough on on you know a a monthly basis to make that that decision kind of a no-brainer um that the the cost of taking these aircraft will probably remain higher than the cost of commuting by car but probably not more by more than a factor of like two or three. And it's a little bit tricky. A lot of times when people think about the cost of operating their car, they think about the cost of maybe like gas or whatnot. But when you when you tally up gas, wear and tear and maintenance and insurance and all these other things, the, the cost of a, a 40 minute or, or an hour commute in a car is, is somewhere on the order of 20 bucks a day sometimes, 20, 30 bucks a day. And I think that it's a reasonable price target to expect these aircraft to to hit something like 40 50 60 bucks a day so it is something that i think is going to remain for the foreseeable future a, mostly a part of the travel of the upper upper middle class at most but the way that affects their lifestyles i think is going to have ripple effects on just the surrounding communities i mean essentially you know we went through when when personal transportation in the form of cars got got cheap you know after world war ii we saw the development of suburbs and and people living you know further out from the city i think we are likely you know conditional on on you know these aircraft actually flying we we are probably going to see essentially a second wave of sort of suburban or urban sprawl resulting from people who can afford it moving out into more desirable places to live that have not been traditionally desirable places to work and that they will then probably be more likely to commute by aircraft and and obviously there's a whole whole basket of sociological effects that go along with with that development but that's essentially how i what i think is the most reasonable picture for how this fits into the the economic and sociological structure of at least the united states at this time I find that an incredibly interesting explanation from you because partway through your explanation, one of the first thoughts that occurred to me as you went through sort of commute times and costs of those commute times as well as problems with with cars and that sort of thing is that 
this will likely coincide with almost identically in in a lot of areas that it is feasible uh, self-driving cars and i not only firmly believe that self-driving cars are going to largely change how people feel about commutes and how commutes are and the length of commutes but it's also going to fundamentally change car ownership and likely traffic at some point once that car ownership desire changes because Mm -hmm. why why own a car when there's self-driving cars everywhere and it become it could possibly become a service instead that makes things much more efficient so i part way through your explanation part of my thought was well what if what if other things change such that traffic is less bad as well as the fact that you don't have to drive and driving is no longer a chore or an action or or necessarily a cost especially with the rise of uh, electric cars in the future you know, what, what if it becomes so much more economically feasible to get in an autonomous electric car? Why why would you pay all this money to, uh, you know, go in the plane? On the other hand, with a, another problem with the plane being its battery life, if the battery lives don't significantly change, how many trips can these things go through before they have to recharge? If it only goes through one trip, you know, and you fit four people in there, and then you have to recharge after that trip, okay, that that's not great, but I guess it could work with commutes, you know fly somewhere from point a to point b uh and then recharge and then in time for rush hour on the way back fly from point b to point a but that that still is yet to be determined and we don't know what the maximum capacity of these batteries is we don't know how long it takes to charge them we don't know how many miles these things are going to be able to get so that's another thing that I'm, i'm i guess i'm realistically a little worried about but even even further is like who knows how the FAA is going to deal with this? Because there, there's things I think you've said and other individuals have said, which is that, oh, well, this, these are these are things that could feasibly and autonomously land, you know, in, in, in suburban centers. But I don't see the FAA being okay with that. And more <laughs> importantly than seeing the FAA be okay with that, I don't know how feasible it is to hit your, you know, go to your phone and say, land in my front yard and then have it happen. Uh, what what I imagine will be more much more likely to happen is a setup where there are, you know, almost subway centers that you can go to to board these things. Yeah. Um, and I think that's much more realistic. But then you still have to get to the subway center, which isn't where you live. And so the convenience of that is, well, okay, I have to get in a car, which may or may not be autonomous at this point. I have to go to a place... And then I have to wait in a line to board a flying vehicle unless the fleet is ready at arrival, which, okay, possible, fine, um, to then fly to where I, to another center and then go to where I work using, I mean, let's say in this theory, everything's all, there's enough autonomous cars, you don't worry about it, using another, some other service of autonomous car. So now you've turned what was get in my car and go to work in an autonomous vehicle that is possibly electric and not particularly expensive to get in a car, go to a place, get in a plane, go to a place. So, sorry, let me rephrase that. Get get in a car, go to a place, get in a line, get in a plane, get out of the plane, get to a car, go to your work. And I, presumably you'd be paying for multiple steps of that too because unless you have a car upon arrival, which pretty unlikely, you're going to be paying for either someone or another car to bring you to that third point. And you'll likely be paying for another car to bring you to the original point. So there's a lot of feasibility issues that just from a purely human perspective and regulation perspective, I am curious to see how they work out. But I, it just seems so 
unlikely to me personally that with all of these issues, not only will they all work out and exist in such a way that the everyday man will use these, but it seems more likely kind of with what you're saying, which is I can see it being a luxury item for individuals with a lot of income because it, it, it seems likely that, oh, I, you know, I'm CEO of Big Dollars Incorporated and I have to get into work in San Francisco or wherever, but I like living in this other location or, or I have a much bigger house and place where property is much cheaper. Why would I ever live in, in you know, Silicon Valley directly when I can live there and there's a center near me that I can get a plane in every morning? That seems much more reasonable than it necessarily changing urban sprawl directly for everyone, but perhaps that will help in some degree with property prices because individuals who have that money can live somewhere else. But I don't know if it'll work out that way because if you already have the money, why wouldn't you just buy the house in the expensive place? So I don't know. There's there's a lot of issues I have with it moving forward, and I'm curious to see how they work out. I'm curious to see where it goes, and I do think they will exist. I think they will exist. I think people will use them, but I don't know how accessible they will be. I don't know if I would use one at any point that it isn't a special occasion unless I become rich, which, you know, it's fine too. <laughs> uh, so what, what I'll say is, is I've been working on this, this problem, this, but you know, as a technical research and having discussions about it for about two years now. And I think you, you have hit on basically every, open-ended problem that nobody is is quite sure how to solve you can't see me but i did just do a fist bump and and i will say that it usually takes people more on the order of like weeks or months to come to understand the problem well enough and <laughs> and see through the line to these issues but yeah like like that battery density and you know how far they can go is is a primary technical problem and, and a bigger issue is that most of the energy is burned up in the takeoff and landing portion. So if you wanted to do this as more of a public transit option with like multiple stops along the way, that very quickly eats up all of your range. So I think looking at looking at the numbers we have now, it looks like you could probably do maybe 100 miles on a single hop, very optimistically. So something like San Francisco to Sacramento or something. But that's with present day tech, correct? No, that that's essentially projecting out to about 2023 tech. Um, oh, with present Lord. day with present day tech, you'll struggle to do 50, 60 miles. Oh Lord! Yeah, yeah. And I thought Cora already had a hundred. No, Cora, I think is like 50 or 60 miles. Uh, I think it, I think it's a hundred kilometers. They they bill it as. But yeah, I, I one one of the very first things I looked at was okay. Well, how far can you go if you want to do multiple stops and that range that you know even even with like 2023 tech that range that was like san francisco to sacramento if you want to do two stops on the way becomes more like san francisco to san jose and two we i did spend some time looking at like could this really be a properly personal thing versus a like bus terminal thing to, to do it kind of properly personal the the restriction that we we imposed was can you fit this in a, a parking like two parking spaces side by side? Can you fit a vehicle that you could you could take you know have just land where you are, kind of get around the the three vehicle problem of you know take a vehicle to get to the terminal, take the the plane somewhere else, and then take another vehicle. And it's it's really marginal, and and frankly, I'm going to say really not feasible or or worthwhile to to build an aircraft that does fit into 
like a two parking space so that this can really be a, a, a personal vehicle. But if what if I want to ship my pet squirrel from point A to point B very quickly? <laughs> I mean, I that, think that's there, worthwhile. Yeah, that there's always going to be a market for ludicrously wealthy people with with really <laughs> insane demands. Um, I will say though, the the <laughs> fundamental number underpinning all of this is battery energy density. And and when I'm talking about projecting to 2023 tech, I'm I'm pretty much talking about projecting to 2023 battery energy density. And right, so right now, batteries hold about 200 to 230 watt hours per kilogram of battery that you have once it's been installed in the battery pack because there's extra weight that, you know, doesn't provide energy. But, you know, you have to armor these things because batteries are not the most stable thing. So you have to armor them. And that's kind of waste weight. But at, at the pack level, you can typically get about 200 to 230 watt hours for every kilogram of energy that you have. Projecting out to 2023 without any real major tech revolutions, you expect that number to rise to about 300. But, I mean, there's kind of the, the elephant in the room is that the next big wave in battery technology is lithium air chemistry, which should about double battery energy density at which point these these numbers get obviously much better in range and all that and cost and whatnot gets better except that lithium air batteries have the interesting property that they get heavier as they discharge which is quite terrible for aircraft dynamics so i'm I'm optimistic about these aircraft but it's not the most obvious direct road that to say that even if they aren't ready now they're definitely going to be ready in in 10 15 20 years there are some fundamental technical and and physical challenges that have to be overcome to get these into a price and usability bracket where they are just a a major major part of of transportation infrastructure yeah i definitely expect them to exist i i I have i mean they do but (laughs) It's just I'm very curious, and and to be fair, when you said I I hit on a lot of the points, it's not this isn't the first time I've thought about this. Um, <laughs> it, oh yeah, when you you're, go you're to, showing your hand a little bit. Yeah, I mean when you go to the, the you're at the Aero Astro department for two years in Stanford, you tend to think a lot about the Silicon Valley startups in aerospace, especially when they have big news and everyone in your department's talking about it because you know that's what we do. But I'm curious to see how quickly and realistically it becomes feasible because that's that's really the part that i think i am most interested in is is that moving forward i'm also interested in the technology itself but technology itself if it doesn't have a realistic use is it's not nobody's gonna use it like (laughs) it's good you did it but until someone later on comes and goes oh we could just do this though and then it becomes useful nobody cares about it so do you do you think that's a good point for a quick break? Yeah, I think I think you know this is this is as good a time as any. I think in the the second half we're just going to be talking a little bit more about things that are just fun and interesting to us. But yeah, the 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 coverage of EV tolls and the the end of the opportunity mission. If if you tuned into this episode expecting to hear very serious sober technical engineering analysis, this is this is the jump off point for you. But stay, because because you know. Because we love Space you. Jam. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll be back in a bit.
peeps do not attempt to adjust that dial. It is indeed I, Jordan Smart, coming to you in this mid-episode break. If you were expecting the dulcet tones of one Alex Hobbs at this juncture, don't worry, he'll be back in the pilot's chair next episode. But for now, it falls to me to extend our usual thanks to Andy G. Cohen for our use of his music, particularly the songs Just a Blip on the album Through the Lens and Scramby Eggs from the album Layers. No matter how you came to this podcast, if you'd like to learn more, you can find us at The Farmcast on Twitter or Facebook or head straight to our website, www.thefarmcast.com. Now before we get to the uh, second half of this episode, I do want to say a few words about the fact that this podcast obviously has some deep ties to Stanford University. A lot of our guests are students there, and um, this podcast was started when Alex and I were both students there. And the university has been in the headlines for some less than wonderful reasons over the last couple of weeks. There's obviously the uh, the nationwide college admissions scandal that the FBI recently uncovered and uh for right now I'm gonna I'm gonna say no comment and I, I will tell you we don't discuss that um in the second half of this episode that story broke after we had recorded um this particular session however in the future uh, I expect that 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 will come up however uh, a more serious topic is that there have recently been a pair of suicides among the graduate student population at the School of Engineering here. And uh, I will say that we will not be offering any comment on that matter. Our thoughts and concerns are with the family, friends, and anyone affected by the loss. And beyond that, we will say nothing more. Uh, I expect that mental health will be a recurring topic uh, on this podcast as we talk about its role in graduate student life. But um, yeah, we will we will not now nor ever be offering comments on uh, any one specific case unless those comments are offered by that person as a guest or, or me and Alex talking about our own experiences. But that said, I'm going to let you get back to, you know, some uh, some lighter fare the second half of this podcast and I'll catch you on the flip side folks peace welcome back we are now entering a segment that I think I'm going to name Guys getting progressively older act like old men. <laughs> um, the section for discussion is less technologically based than the second one, but it still revolves around technology. I think one of the things basically that I wrote down for it is is the one of the things that's really interested me recently is the change as someone who's grown up largely on television, um, you know, as a child with internet sort of as a back burner, and how that transition sort of came you know, as I got older to the basically complete opposite, where now I almost feel that I can't wait for the day when cables, I don't want to say no longer a thing, but I don't see a reason why it needs to continue to exist when that content can be provided in other mediums. And sort of in, in similar vein to that, a lot of the similar technological changes that are happening with the expansion of the internet, with the expansion of, of 
easily accessible mobile, you know, media everywhere on your phone and how that's not only changing how we view media, but also how media is packaged and sold to customers. Because to me, I, I and I think I've mentioned this to Jordan regularly where he probably thinks it's a broken record at this point, but I don't have cable anymore. I don't feel any need to have cable. The only things that I'm slightly interested in watching on cable would be sports. And there's now sports packages where I could watch if I really, really wanted to. I, I could just pay for just that sports package. I could just pay for hockey, which is kind of my favorite sport to watch. You know, I'm a Flyers fan. Like, I could just play for that. Why would I pay for an entire cable package? Much less, why would I pay for a cable package in location where I can't watch the Flyers locally? You know, in I, I live in the L.A. area now. I can't access those games. So why would it, why, why does this old medium still continue to exist and and there, there are some benefits to it certainly but there's just so many negatives the price is ridiculous it, there's so many limitations of time you're, you're paying an absurd amount of price for a service that also just includes ads constantly throughout it and and so many other things and problems that i have with it that, that i think the discussion is kind of just a, a general shift in in media and consumption of media in in that we've seen in our lifetime and where we think it's headed in the future Yes, I think I, I kind of want to want to pick your brain a little bit about this, partly because I like I've never been a huge sports consumer. Um, the Eagles, obviously, like I, I bleed Eagles green. But I think I think the interesting thing when it, when I think about sort of growing up watching TV versus now consuming most media through the internet is the communal aspect of it without necessarily having everybody in your living room with you. Hmm. And and sports kind of preserves some of that because of the locationality with it right like you're still a, sure. a flyers fan so there's still sort of a flyers community but back in the 90s and, and i think even into the early 2000s when there were relatively few options for for really what to watch especially when you start slicing it down by by demographics and, and age and location the the people that you interacted with whether that was at school or work or whatnot there was probably only half a dozen and really more like two or three different things that eventually people like settled on to watch so even if you you weren't gathering a group of people to watch it you could come into work or school the next day and be able to talk to people about what you watched the night before and and feel reasonably confident that they had also watched it and had you know that similar experience of watching it so i wanted to to kind of get your thoughts on how that aspect has changed like did did you do you feel like you had a sort of similar experience of this sort of what's what's the, the yes word? yeah i mean the, yeah the sort of i know like, what like you mean uncoordinated but coordinated watching you know group watching experience yes yeah no i know exactly what you're talking about and i i did en enjoy parts of that i and i think a lot of that was something fun like for example back in oh, i don't even i don't remember i think it might have been the 0809 season of the flyers when you know they uh they they lost in the stanley cup finals and I'm, uh, someone might roast me because i got the year wrong but it was around that that age where they lost in that year in the finals but you know i bet it might have been i think it was 0910 actually it's on my shirt why don't i just look down what year is this? hold on give me a second here you can edit out any pause i have where i can't see the friggin no, man, no, man. This, uh 2010 2010 i did there. mess it up yeah, okay. yeah it, was t it was 2010 so and they this, were eastern conference champions was on your chest the whole time <laughs> yeah i literally looked down and i was like wait a second i have the answer to this question without even having to google it uh and and what was crazy about that year was it was also in the year in the playoffs when they were the like you know third or fourth team ever 
to have a 3-0 comeback in a seven-game series to win the series, mm. which for those of you who don't watch sports was essentially they lost. It's a seven-game series, so it's best of seven, first were, of four they wins. They were essentially at match point. Like they were, they were at yes. death's door. They lost three games in a row and then won four games in a row to win a seven-game series, which basically n- essentially never happens. Yeah. It was, it's, it's, it, that's, that's it, the it's kind happened of thing that gets called a miracle ever. on ice or something like that. Yes. And that year we didn't make it to the finals. We lost in the finals, but it's still one of those big, it's one of the biggest memories I've ever had. And, and what I what was crazy about it to me was I remember going in, into school, you know, days after games would happen and, and saying, you know, even when they down, went down 3-0, you know, I'd be like, well, I guess it's over, which we would say. But then you'd go in the next day after they had won a game when it was 3-1 and say, well, they did go 500 this season. You know, they went, they they had a f- even split throughout the regular season, mm-hmm. and people would know what you were talking about. People who cared about this sort of thing would would talk about that with you. But I I, I don't think it's that these things don't exist now. I think to some degree they do. You know, I, I could go into work when the the Rams were in the you know the Super Bowl. I, I would go in and see people interested in the Super Bowl wearing those things, and and obviously you know who's in the Super Bowl, it, it, even if you don't care about football at all. It's almost inevitable that you find out. Yeah. But but I think a lot of that is now determined by where you're at in life, because it would not surprise me, um, and I'm gonna sound like an old man here, um, and and possibly would it, would it isolate some parts of the our audience these days. If the kids these days went into school and amongst themselves discussed the sweet Fortnite snipes they saw last night on the Twitch, <laughs> you know, that wouldn't surprise me. It genuinely wouldn't surprise me because there's hundreds of thousands of young people watching Twitch now, whereas that audience shifted from other things previously. And for those of you unfamiliar with Twitch, it is a live streaming uh, video game, generally video game, occasionally other things, but almost nine, you know, ninety nine percent video games of people playing these video games. Um, different personalities, different you know people do these things. But like right now, for example, well, actually that's really low right now. I went on to see how many people are playing Fortnite. Only eighty five thousand. Oh people yeah, watching. only, only eighty five thousand. Early people. earlier this day, there was like half a million people watching, and like it wouldn't surprise me if that audience is largely switching. And it would also wouldn't surprise me if, if a lot of that is changing simply because there is such a greater access to so much more different content that allows for a lot more niche viewing of things that people are interested in, which I am all in favor of because I don't think, you know, I, I like sports, but I also realize the tribalism in it. Um, and I don't necessarily think that that is always a positive thing. Um, but also, just in general, I think the spreading of culture and change over time is is a good thing. Yeah, I mean that the 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 things that I think have most occupied my mind in thinking about how things like streaming and and it's it's weird because even even with streaming, even with stuff that is kind of in its nature live, um, there there are two elements that I think come into it with internet technology that that weren't there with with broadcast technology which is one on demand with respect to timing and two oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, so nice two search oriented delivery which is to say that yeah one with the on demand timing that that means that yeah you can watch it whenever you want but that also means that not everybody is watching it at the same time and sure. and two right like you you only get what you go to look for like there's some you know youtube and and different media 
spend a whole lot of effort trying to, to put things in front of you that it thinks that you'll like, but it's not like you just sit down and, you know, whatever is on TV at this moment, right? Like that's what you're going to watch. And maybe you have some flexibility of choice of what channel, but you, you kind of have to, you have to know like the keyword to search for, for what you're looking for, right? Like there's, there's things that go viral and, and things that get, get pushed around, but by and large, we only watch the videos and, and consume the music or pot or podcasts and what, what else that we, we sought to when we sat down. You don't get exposed to Lawrence Welks yeah. anymore. I mean, this really kind of hit me when I was, when I was walking through a library at one point with Amazon and with Google, right? If I want to know something, like I Google what, what I'm looking for the answer to. Yeah. And then I get that, right? But but walking through a library at one point, there were there were a book I was like, I can't believe somebody wrote a book on that, right? <laughs> sure. I mean, like the the science library here has a whole shelf and, and really like a whole section basically on how to have a career as a scientist. And I was I was shocked that there there were just books on that. Like I would not have thought to Google comprehensive tome on how to write an NSF proposal or, or how to negotiate a tenure job. And these are not things that I'm super interested in at the moment, but <laughs> yeah, like, like just, just knowing that that compendium of knowledge and, or media of any form is out there is it's essentially, it's like we, we've turned off our receptors for that, right? Like we, we know that if we want to know something, we'll go and find it. So we, we, don't waste any time, effort, or attention on just being generally receptive to the media culture around us because the signal-to-noise ratio, and, and increasingly, I think the signal-to-noise ratio makes that not worth it. I mean, And yeah, I, I think there's some positives to it because the positives are, oh, well, it's better media, there's more competition, you don't have to be obligated into watching ads, prices are more affordable. But there's also drawbacks where how do I know what's going on in my local community mm -hmm. and the answer to that question is i don't <laughs> i super don't uh, it's kind of bad but yeah. also there's a certain part of me this is a self-aware citizen who knows that i should know these things that says how much does it benefit me to know why would i spend my time knowing these things learning these things, watching, taking time out of my day to watch this when I could also just watch a guy on YouTube bake the world's largest bacon cake. <laughs> and, and, and I'm not sure if you said bacon cake too. or No, bacon. I said bacon. B-A-C-O-N. Oh, okay. yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that that's something. Um, <laughs> but but it, it becomes this weird thing where, at least from a personal perspective, Although I'm not motivated to fix the problem, there is still a concern to me that there is a lack of accessibility to local news and, and stories. And I say that knowing full well that in recent years and times, the craziest part about that is still to this day, the best way you can access that local news is to have cable and watch your local cable station. But what sucks about that is that a lot of these local cable stations are now being bought out by larger national corporations and becoming standardized for specific purposes, whether those are political or other things. They're no longer obligated to concentrate on local news. And so even this thing, which was the best way to get access to local news and find out what's going on in your community, now is almost no longer that. So so in, in, in this 
day and age where do you even go for that information because newspapers local newspapers don't exist anymore local cable is now owned by national companies that have their own agenda and there isn't really that many good local news online sources you know i mean i I don't know what's happening in the city i live in because there isn't a news online website i can go to for i don't know i can say it but the place i live in the la area I mean, also, I think I think this is maybe a little bit of um, rose-colored glasses about just local news. Because actually, I think at a couple points, I have I've had that thought, and like I went back and watched just the local, like six ABC Philly local news, and I found the experience incredibly infuriating because <laughs> they just the way the stories were told and, and the things that they reported on were not at all what I was interested about a story right well if it's um, the philly news it's probably always people getting murdered but oh yeah but i mean if, if it's just like <laughs> oh sorry did i did i was i a little too direct there my bad <laughs> no that just, that just took me a second to process and, and it was yeah. also like it was also just real <laughs> like i was also yeah obviously yeah like, no the news is just going to cover the latest murders but yes so, yeah i, was I like, went that's... a little dark there but also i've watched local news and sometimes i watch my mother watch it before i would go to bed you know when i was visiting during college and things and i'd be why are you watching this before you go to bed <laughs> it's just seven people's murders like yeah it was, i was like that's, that's i was like that's just trivially true everyone knows that the local news is just full of murder but yeah. um if they're covering a story about what what happened at a recent town town council or, or you know something that the mayor announced and then it's like they go to the the joe on the street for his opinion about it and i'm like i don't i don't care what joe on the street has to say about this find me find me an economist who has like studied this proposal <laughs> and you know has some information about like oh you know this, like this is going to do this to the local school system but we're expecting this influx of people or, or outflux and you know, here's the local demographic. Like, like, give me, give me decision relevant information about what's going on around me. Whereas, whereas most local, like, it just, like, it feels like it's deliberately trying to be, like, water cooler fodder conversation. Are um, you implying, Jordan? And I've never heard this theory before, but that that the news media has become relevant and and largely consumed by individuals who don't care about the actual news i just i just feel like like the news should operate essentially i mean this is oh my god this is you know engineer tells other profession how to do their jobs we're very good at that what what i want (laughs) what i'll say what i want from the news is essentially to be an intelligence agency right like give me the information and analysis and the the things that i don't know that I should know essentially that like that that's what I want like I don't want to be entertained I don't want you know just just what's what's thrilling or salacious or whatnot like give give me I mean maybe this is partly just my personality but but give it to me dry and as unbiased and, and clear as you can get it and like that like that would be so valuable right yeah you could just be the the repository of analysis of and not and not you know cnn pundits yelling at each other but but that's that is the thing that i found very difficult to find you know either through old media because i still i still subscribe to the economist and and 
New York Times is and that, a couple other that, places. Do you actually have the the Economist? Are you a real subscriber now? I don't, are you still getting free get, copies? I don't get the paper, but yeah, no, I, I do pay to get the uh, the digital edition now. Okay, because I, I specifically remember at some point in grad school you telling me that wherever you lived, yeah. that someone was still having a, <laughs> the physical copies like, of the Economist delivered, and you were just like, "Oh, this is sweet." I feel like I feel like that that's their like that's their marketing strategy is just keep delivering the magazines to a place like when when they get a change of address, like we'll just keep sending them and see if the new person there would would like to to start a subscription like they oh, but they they maybe that's actually genius if that's true yeah they they try to to move towards it but it's also just like mm, it, it's also just like upper class posturing about how smart they are for being able to 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 see the the underlying real economic argument here and it's just yes yeah. I, yeah okay with the economist sure i haven't read the economist before but i can see how they would do that but i will say with when you mentioned new york times i've also read a lot of new york times over the last few years just because it, it feels i don't read the opinion articles or anything but in terms of actual general reporting of what has occurred yeah they tend to do a pretty good job of it yeah. and i i do wish that there was a more local and you know, I could if someone writes in and tells me to read the L.A. Times, yeah, okay. But <laughs> you know, a a, a localized yeah. series of things all throughout the U.S. or all throughout the world, you know, if if that were something that that individuals could could find and consume, that I think that would be interesting. And and maybe I sound like a crazy person, but you know, if if, if that you know, thirty years down the line, literally, you know, evolves into literal new newspapers mm. because people want to actually know what's going on in their local community then hey let's go with it but i, I don't think that's the way to go but if if, if there was a perhaps a, co- a company or something or or an organization the, that word feels better even though it could literally mean a company uh that put together investigators in lots of different areas and that you knew you could go to this website and no matter where you lived, you could find out about your local news. I, mean, I it, think that would be incredibly beneficial. I do think that that, that is what NPR tries to be. Um, <laughs> but sure, sure, sure. I just... Yeah. They I try. They do yeah, try. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, think, I think that, like, again, like, kind of tying this back to the overall trend of you know, old media versus new media and, and how technology plays into that, I think part of the issue is that doing this kind of investigative journalism is hard and, and requires yeah, no. people. Like, it's not something you can mm-hmm. automate with a computer, really. No, you can't. Um, but that, that means, and this is my biggest issue with NBR, is that I, I don't think they have that much like institutional bias, but they do very much have the bias of their people just what the reporters consider sensible and salient about the information to me i find very often like sharply diverges from what i consider sensible and salient about the situation and and that can be frustrating but that is i think that is the pervasive localized investigative reporting and you know that, that doesn't make me feel super good about the fact that every time they come on with a pledge drive i mostly just get frustrated and switch over to another another uh another uh station station. yeah yeah Yeah. but um yeah that's i mean that's that's a fair point and npr does do work there and and oftentimes does good work but i i think that there should be more there available and it's hopefully at some point it becomes available but until then 
we're just gonna have to look at things from a you know macroscopic view instead of a microscopic view even if that isn't what we want to do yeah i just don't think disrupting public radio doesn't get too many venture capitalists excited really you don't think so no i don't i don't i don't think that's lighting <laughs> up the, the spreadsheets on uh on sand hill road <laughs> do you want to do you want to call it there yeah i think we can call it there right. um, <laughs> hope everyone enjoyed listening to our our i don't where did this discussion start media well, I mean, yeah I don't just, know. just how media has changed and, and i think we you know talked about what what was most valuable about old media at least at least to me that that, that hasn't been replicated by new media very well go win a fortnight is that <laughs> is that i think there's chicken dinners involved at some point i don't know there are oh, there are okay yeah yeah i've had go, I've had go one shoot two. somebody in the head to get a chicken dinner <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh, oh.